All right, today's passage is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He, referring to Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and a Pharisee and the other tax, collect, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. So before we jump in, know that this will function as a kind of part two to last week's sermon on the parable of the wedding feast, and specifically Jesus's exhortation to, quote, take a lower seat at the table. So you're going to want to go back and watch that one if you haven't already, because I'm going to be assuming a lot of the ground that I covered there already. These two parables are linked by the same phrase Jesus uses to summarize the moral of the story, namely verse 14b, where he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. These two parables are both about the gospel gift and obligated posture of humility, but with some very subtle but important differences. Now, as I explained last week, Jesus's parable of the wedding feast comes at it from the perspective of shame and honor and primarily or especially in the kind of horizontal dimension, i.e. in our relationships with others. This, par this week's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector looks at humility from the perspective of guilt and righteousness and is hyper-focused on the vertical dimension, i.e. in our relationship with God. Both have to do with how we find dignity, value, and worth with the parable of the wedding feast addressing how we derive that from other people and this parable of the Pharisee and tax collector addressing how we receive that from God. So let's jump in. First, I want you to resist the temptation to rush, to rush past verse nine, where Luke explicitly tells us who Jesus was primarily directing his teacher to teaching to, which says he also told this parable to some a who trusted in themselves that B they were righteous and C, treated others with contempt. I highlight those three clauses in particular because it explicitly describes the posture of the Pharisee that he then goes on to describe in the parable. Verse 11 says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, but if you have an ESV Bible like the one I'm reading from, you might've actually noticed a footnote pointing out that it, it could be more literally translated as the Pharisee standing prayed to himself 
In other words, his trust in himself to achieve a worthiness of God's love through his religious deeds and righteous activity came out as a prayer that was functionally not to God at all, but to himself. In short, Jesus is making this point that self-justification inevitably leads to self-righteousness and becomes self-worship. Now, you and I would probably agree that all of that is not a good thing. And our familiarity with the Pharisees, as demonstrated by our pejorative use of the word to describe moralism as, quote, pharisaical, this actually blinds us to how much Jesus's audience wouldn't have even blinked at this point or seen any issues with it at all. At least not yet. The Pharisees were widely respected. They were revered and seen as a prime example of what all Jews should aspire to be. Much like we might view a, hopefully I'm going to get the politics on this right, but a, a John McCain or a John Lewis. Even if you disagreed with them, you can still respect them, right? They deserve the honor and reverence they received, speaking about the Pharisees, because they represented the best of, the, of Israel and largely stood as at least defenders of their faith under the reign of the Roman Empire, at least as much as one could under an authoritarian regime, right? In other words, the Pharisees' self-righteousness wasn't seen as unbecoming or contrary to Ju Judaism, although it, it was, but as a needed religious identity marker to distinguish Israel from their Roman occupiers and resist the pressure to conform or compromise. Gee, it's almost like history repeats itself and God's people are often tempted to compromise faith through overreaction to persecution, real or perceived, but that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> I want to show you what I mean about this principle by pointing out something in the passage that's probably not obvious to most of us. You see, the Pharisees' prayer that Jesus has him say follows a formula and roughly mirrors a familiar prayer called the dawn blessing, which Jewish men would have prayed every morning as an expression of gratitude to God. It goes like this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or your favorite, uh, a woman. <laughs> now, there is a long, complicated, and very mixed history with that prayer that I just don't have the time to get into right now, but Jesus is intentionally alluding to it in order to bypass the automatic or assumed reverence people would have had for the Pharisees. This revered public figure who isn't just not a Gentile slave or a woman, he is the very epitome of spiritual achievement and attainment. If anything, he would be right, his audience would think, he would be right to thank God for not making him, for example, like this traitor tax collector who, and we'll dive into this more in a minute, was his polar opposite in every fathomable way. But there's a problem here. And this last week was had National Grammar Day, so you might have caught it. Uh, but the subtle change in wording that Jesus quotes the Pharisee saying as, as a contrast to the prayer I just described is very different. He, he actually didn't thank God for, quote, not making him like these other people. He said, thank you that I am not like other men. In other words, he's getting his identity out of his own self-understanding. He's getting his identity out of not being someone else. And that translates to contempt. He's thanking God with an attitude and posture that seems outwardly humble, but still betrays a heart that is functionally taking credit for his own goodness or how he perceives it. <laughs> if you've grown up in a church at all, you've probably heard someone pray for so-and-so who is, quote, making unwise life decisions or, quote, paying the consequences of their actions or some other kind of sanctified version of contempt. And that's 
That's what's going on here, but it's really subtle. More importantly, though, I say all this to help you appreciate two key points Jesus is trying to make in the way that he is portraying the Pharisee in this parable. First, that his self-righteousness is inseparable from a contempt toward others that is ultimately rooted in his heart's posture toward God. Or in other words, who you have contempt for is a mirror image of where you, quote, trust in yourself and not in God for your dignity, value, and worth. The second point Jesus is trying to make with his portrayal of the Pharisee here is that self-righteousness is not necessarily a function of one's religiosity, but despite it, and often shows up where you least expect it. In other words, the problem was not that the Pharisee was uber-religious and dependent on God and, and too much, but that he wasn't religious and dependent enough. So, <laughs> that said, I have been racking my brain trying to think of modern equivalents or examples to illustrate these two points and how confrontational, patently offensive, and utterly shocking they would have been to the original audience for Jesus to frame it in this way. And that ended up being a hell of a lot harder than I expected, but for a reason that frankly just broke my heart. The challenge was not that I couldn't come up with enough examples, but in thinking of any kind of example that didn't apply or hasn't been used as a basis of self-righteous contempt for others in our culture and society right now. It struck me just how much our culture and society, both inside and both outside and inside the church, has become absolutely saturated with a self-righteousness-fueled contempt, such that there is precious little, little we don't leverage as a battleground for trusting in ourselves to prove our righteousness to the masses. And if you don't believe me, here is my uh, 21st century American rewriting or translation of the Pharisee's prayer, accord, uh, incorporating those two points that Jesus was trying to make. And I want to give you a quick disclaimer first, though, because I normally make a point to pick on both sides pretty evenly, no matter where I am, whether inside or outside the church or left or right or whatever. But to do so here would actually risk giving us an out in dealing with our own self-righteous, right, our own self-righteousness unconditionally. So you're going to notice that this mostly focuses on those areas that those of us at the table are likely most tempted to be self-righteous about, which means I am, of course, significantly increasing the odds of offending you, and yay, here we go. Um, here's the prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, ready for it? Politicians generally, or MAGA Trump supporters specifically. God, I thank you that I am not like white evangelicals who don't care about immigrants or the least of these like I tweet about. Thank you, God, that I am not a moralist who judges, an elitist who excludes, or a naive believer who never doubts or questions. Thank you, God, that I am not a Pharisee. Unlike those people, I vote right, I eat right, I exercise right, I invest right, I parent right, and I prioritize work balance right. I provide for my family and give to charitable causes I care about. I communicate support on social media for every oppressed people group that my socio-political tribe cares about. I have empathy for those who are struggling and listen rather than point to the Bible for easy answers. I go to church, but I make sure it's not too big of a deal in my life because I'm spiritual but not religious. I, 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 I. Do you notice it? And to get pandemic specific, I am gonna pick on both sides here. Quote, I don't let fear control me and refuse to wear a mask, or as is more likely the case for most of us at the table, 
I love my neighbor and believe science, so I do wear a mask. Or here, I've been picking on all of you. I'm gonna, I'll do me. And with a little bit more of my temptation toward self-righteousness sprinkled in as well, because this, is, this, is, this cuts every way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, spiritual consumers who just want to take from the church what they feel the, the need for and rarely give back, or those who prefer comfort and convenience over being committed to the broken but beloved family of God that God has adopted them into. I have made those things my life's work and am planting a church that already planted another church for Christ, I'm sorry, for your sake. I am never late to a meeting. I'm right about 90% of the things about 90% of the time, and that was... Danny's feedback. Um, I keep my commitments no matter what it costs, and I try to nuance everything because I've listened to everyone's perspective. And yes, I probably should have stretched before patting myself on the back that much. But seriously, if it is hard to tell the difference between good and right aspirations from those that are laden with self-righteousness and contempt, then good, because that's the point. I want us to see how deceptively convoluted and easily distorted even right and good convictions and beliefs can be when we leverage them for our own self-justification, our own dignity, value, and worth. We fallen human beings can make any good thing a God thing, and we can weaponize any deed against those we deem contemptible. I want you to fully see and appreciate how counterintuitive Jesus' portrayal of the Pharisee and the tax collector were by pulling this parable into a more relatable and contemporary vein. And speaking of the tax collector, let's talk about his part in this, right? First of all, tax collectors were not the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of IRS agents. They were not paid a salary to fairly or equitably collect the same percentage of taxes from everyone according to the law. No, their salary was whatever they collected above and beyond what the Roman government required them to collect. And that could be whatever amount they wanted because the Roman officials didn't care. They just looked the other way so long as they got their cut. So as you can imagine, this was a profession rife with corruption and extortion to the degree that the Romans made it an official policy to only hire tax collectors from within the local population they were taxing. The idea being that someone known by a taxed community with relational and familial ties would be less likely to be murdered by those they were collecting taxes from. (laughs) Now, none of us like paying taxes But I think we can all agree that we would, you know, struggle to love our neighbors ourselves when said neighbor is also a fellow member of your church who comes knocking on your door every month to legally extort you for more than what you actually owe in taxes in order to line his own pockets. But, you know, not so much that you're beggared and unable to feed your family or become so angry that you'd rather pay the consequences of murdering him than pay another penny into his piggy bank. Tax collectors were considered traitors of the highest order. And that is the context and background for the one whom Jesus says went home justified or declared righteous before God. That is the figure he uses to contrast the commonly revered and respected Pharisee. In other words, it would be whoever you listed as being better than. He does all this to highlight the sole prerequisite, the singular and exclusive qualification for salvation itself. Need. Need. The way that Jesus portrays that need with the tax collector is extreme. He was so guilt-ridden and ashamed that he couldn't even lift his eyes to look up. And he stood far away, not daring to approach the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt in the temple. 
Beating one's chest was a rare expression of extreme emotion. And when he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, there's actually a definite article in there so that it would be more accurately translated as, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This reinforces he's not comparing himself to anyone. (laughs) Actually, if anything, he is so totally taking moral responsibility for his actions that he sees everyone else as justified before God by comparison. The literal opposite of the Pharisees' contempt toward others. This challenges us in a very different way than the Pharisees' example did. Instead of jumping on the bandwagon to condemn a moralist, we are likely to be tempted to run to the tax collector and rescue him from what we see as a a self-loathing or a lack of self-esteem. And to be clear, that's not what's happening. He he is not self-loathing, but it is a lack of self-esteem, actually. Let me me explain that claim, right? Self-loathing is an attitude of our hearts that to varying degrees and for a diversity of reasons, we condemn ourselves. It is a self-contempt that puts ourselves in the judgment seat of our own verdict and judges based on our actions. In in many ways, it actually operates off of the same foundation of works or deeds-based righteousness that the Pharisee operates off of. It just comes to a very different conclusion. In other words, both self-righteousness and self-loathing say, I obey, therefore I am accepted, with the differences being whether you believe that you are successful in meeting the religious or irreligious definition for what it means to obey or to earn your acceptance. That is not what's happening here. This is a self-awareness that doesn't start with a hard look at our righteousness or lack thereof, but with a hard look at a holy God. Righteous, that word is, is another way of saying holy and God's holiness serves as a mirror exposing just how much and how holistically we fall short and therefore how impossible it is to ever be righteous enough. No matter how we vote, no matter what we tithe, no matter how good our intentions, no matter how much we love well, and no matter how hard we try. But that is only half the story. We can look into that mirror because God is as merciful as he is holy. The Greek word translated in this passage as have mercy on me is, is, is actually more literally translated as have mercy seat me right? In the Old Testament, the, the mercy seat was the spot on top of the Ark of the Covenant that would have been sprinkled with, the blo- with blood on the annual day of atonement, where Israel is forgiven for their sins. The Ark sat in the Holy of Holies, this innermost sanctum inside the temple where God's very spirit dwelled among his people. This same temple is where the parable takes place. So this language is evoking that actual location. He's saying, forgive me. God, have atonement for me. Give me mercy through this beautiful love and forgiveness you have. It is, he's approaching and knocking on the door of God's home. And it is, but it is only by God's merciful, it is only by God's merciful invitation that we are invited at all to approach and in order to receive rather than achieve our righteousness. That's a very long way of saying what is more beautifully articulated in the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, which says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, is the Spirit's rising beam. 
The Pharisee thought he had everything to offer God and as a result wanted nothing to do with those he saw as falling short by comparison. He could not embrace God's justifying mercy because his arms were too full of himself. Instead of receiving his dignity, value, and worth from a God of grace, he insisted on achieving it, which in addition to being utterly impossible, functionally reduces God to a religious mascot for team me. If we're honest, this is hard news for us because all of us have a propensity to this. And frankly, we live in a society that is only becoming more polarized and more self-righteous, which makes it increasingly easy to see others as either self-righteous Pharisees or contemptible tax collectors. And either, either way, we blurred the lines between the two. As Christians, we must be reminded through scripture, prayer, and repentance and community that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and therefore have no righteousness of our own on which to stand and condemn anyone from, period. Now, in contrast, the tax collector had everything he could have wanted, wealth, etc. but he realized he had nothing to offer God because God wants to offer him himself. In Luke 19, just a little bit later, this actually plays out almost literally when Jesus invites himself into the home of a tax collector named Zacchaeus, who is so profoundly affected by, by the grace and mercy of Jesus' presence that he concretely and radically repented by committing to give half of his wealth to the poor and repay fourfold everything he extorted from others. Jesus responds by declaring, quote, today salvation has come to this house, not because of his deeds in giving that money back or away, but because he saw his need of God and let go of those things and let go of everything, not God, that he had been depending on. If any other fitness were required, God would, by definition, not be a God of grace. This is good news for us because this is what enables us to look in the mirror of God's holiness. And rather than being crushed under the weight of being unable to earn his love, we can be freed to have a far greater self-awareness that leads not to self-righteousness or even self-esteem, but worship and esteem of God for his gift of grace. As Christians, we must be reminded through scripture, prayer, and assurance of grace in community of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, as Paul articulates beautifully in Romans 8, 39, that, quote, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, period. And this, well, it, it, it brings us back to where we started with humility. When we look at the cross, we see both the severity of our need, but also God's more than comparable grace. If both our need and God's grace doesn't cause us to drop what we are holding onto for our self-worth in order to embrace the infinite worth of himself, if we are not humbled by our woeful insufficiency and the cosmic grandeur of his gift, we simply have not spent enough time seeing ourselves through the loving gaze of Jesus. If we can tear ourselves away from our obsessive navel gazing long enough, we will see our need far more deeply and disturbingly than we would ever want to, but also God's love more, as more potent and stubborn in its relentless pursuit of you, even at your most pharisaical, 
such that any other way that you've hoped to make yourself worthwhile through comparison to others will feel worthless in comparison to God's love for you. I can't even state it better than that. I want to end this by actually reading the larger context of where I quoted Paul in Romans 8.39. And I want you to hear it as a benediction, right? Or a, a good word set over you as a blessing and a reminder of God's radically humbling, relentless love. If you're watching this on your own or it wouldn't get you weird looks in the grocery store, I encourage you to pause for a minute. Even as I'm saying this, right? As soon as you're watching this, close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Good. And, and then even hold out your hands in an open posture of receiving this, po- this promise of infinite worth. Christian, as a child of God, this truth is for you. From Romans 8. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.